Good morning. So this is our uh, sixth week in the series on Song of Solomon. So we're in chapter six, chapter six, three through 12. It's a very poetic passage. And so uh, sit back and enjoy the beauty of God's word. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. He pastures his flock among the lilacs, excuse me, the lilies. You are beautiful as Tisra, my love, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Turn away your eye from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins, and not one among them is bereaved. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the darling of my mother, flawless to her that bore her. The maidens saw her and called her happy, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this that looks forth like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, terrible as an army of, with banners? I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my fancy set me in a chariot beside my prince. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you are seated, kids, you can go ahead and head back to your classrooms. Good morning. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you for your word. As Phil mentioned a moment ago, it is beautiful to hear your word. And it's wonderful to be free to hear from it in our hearts and in our souls. And so I ask for that uh, during these next few moments. We ask your blessing over all that continues to go on for your church today. Gathered here together for kids to grow in their faith, to grow in their knowledge of you. For our hearts to be encouraged. For babies to be cared for in the nursery. We lift up every aspect of our worship to you, and this time we give to you as well. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, welcome. Again, it's so good to be here with all of you. I want to tell you a little story. After I finished college, uh, I went abroad for the summer. I went to work at a camp in Costa Rica, a Young Life camp called La Cumbre, and it was uh, in the mountains uh, outside of the main city there, outside of San Jose. And so we were one of the only... (laughs) like civilized, like habitated parts of this huge area of Costa Rica. There was this kind of hoity-toity fishing lodge down the river from us, and then there was us, and that was it. So we were literally out in the middle of nowhere. And this camp was amazing. We would bring in teenagers from Costa Rica, so locals, and we would run them through things like a ropes course and a zip line, and we had some incredible mountain bikes. Like It was just an amazing experience for those kids. And then we would also host American students who would come to us on their summer vacation and do like a week of work crew, like helping us keep up the camp and do little maintenance projects and things like that. So I spent six weeks living and working in this amazing place, and it was an incredible experience. After I got home from working at camp, uh, I got into my next season in life, which was searching for a job, which was terrific. Uh, And as I started my job search, I noticed something funny. Uh, my pants didn't fit me anymore. Like, my shirts felt big, my pants felt really loose, I had to, like, adjust my belt. 
I literally was so bewildered by this, I could not think of like what had happened. Like I thought something was wrong with my pants. If you know me, you know that that's a very easy scenario to picture because I get bewildered somewhat easily. And so I was talking to a friend about the mystery of my pants. Like, why don't my pants fit anymore? Like, I don't understand. And this friend of mine was like, I think she was just being very gracious to me. And she's like, tell me what you ate when you lived in Costa Rica. And I said, like, a really simple diet, like meat and vegetables and some rice. Like, no dairy, no sweets, no nothing. And she was like, dude, you lost weight. And I was like, do you think? Like, it had just never occurred to me. And so that's where I got my million-dollar diet plan, which I'd love to introduce to you guys today. Totally kidding. But something, something pretty significant had happened in that time for me. It taught me a lesson that sometimes change that we go through in our lives is not something we're fully aware of. We can change. We can have our hearts change. We can have our bodies change, even, in ways that we're just like, oh, I didn't even know that was happening. Sometimes we long for change, and it doesn't happen. Or it doesn't happen in the way that we think it should. For most people, when we experience change, we experience a form of loss. One way of life goes away, another way of life is brought into being. And there's a loss, there's a sense of grief around that former way of life. And in some ways, that's kind of what it means to follow Christ, to be a Jesus follower. There's a way of life that goes away slowly, it dies over time. And there's a new way of life through Christ that's raised up, and we can't predict what it's going to look like or what shape it's going to take, just like I couldn't have predicted that my pants wouldn't fit when I got back from Costa Rica. God brings about his glory by changing people into the way that he desires for them to be, which is always more like his son, Jesus. Always, always, always. And so today, we're going to look at change through the lens of Song of Solomon chapter 6. We're going to look at three different headings, which are outlined in your bulletin, about what change does and how it occurs in our lives. And these headings are very simple. It's power and calling and transformation. So we'll see how the power for change comes into our lives. Where do we actually get the power to see change happen? Secondly, we'll take a look at what it means to live out God's desires for us and our callings. And calling might be one of those kind of Christian words that's sort of hard to define. I would just say a calling is what you do with most of your time. So you can be called to be a stay-at-home mom or dad. You can be called to the marketplace. You can be called to care for your elderly parents. There are a lot of different ways that calling can be expressed, and God cares about our calling. Thirdly, we'll consider together how God's transformation in each of our lives plays by no rules except God's rules. We have no purview over how his change actually transforms us. And so our thesis for this morning goes like this. It's actually pretty simple. God's love in Christ empowers us for his calling and his transformation. God's love in Christ empowers us for his calling and his transformation. So let's look at that first heading about how love empowers us. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Song of Solomon 6. If you don't have a Bible, there are are usually a couple back there, but I forgot to put them out earlier. Whoops, put them out later. Fire up your Bible app, Song of Solomon chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 4 through 10 for us, which Phil just read. And I'm reading from a translation that's called the NRSV. You are beautiful as Tirzah, my love, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. And skipping down to verse 10, who is this? that looks forth like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, terrible as an army with banners. Now, if you've been here for any part of our sermon series, you've heard some of the rules of the road that we have for Song of Solomon. One of them is that there are multiple speakers 
in the book. The book is a collection of love poems, and there are different people speaking at different times. So even though when we heard it read a moment ago for, for, uh, for us by Phil, that's one voice. There are actually multiple voices that are playing out in the scriptures. One of the voices we don't hear from today, and that's the king. Remember, the king's kind of the bad guy, like the snidely whiplash of the story. There's the woman, who's our heroine, and then there's the shepherd, who's her true love. Today, we also hear from one of the supporting voices in verse 10, and that's the chorus. The women of Jerusalem might be how your Bible terms it. And they're a little bit like the Greek chorus in any sort of play where they summarize what's been going on. Here's what's been happening. Here's the, here's the gist of the things that have been taking place. In the text that we just read, verses 4 through 9 are the man speaking about his beloved. And then in verse 10, the ladies of the chorus step in and drop their line. Now, there's a phrase in verses 4 and 10 that I want to draw our attention to. If you, if you can look at both on your Bible, I'd encourage you to do that. Both lines are very similar. The speaker is comparing the beauty of the woman to some great cities of the ancient world. You're beautiful like Tirzah, you're beautiful like Jerusalem. That would have been a way of saying, like, you are more beautiful than the lights of Paris. You're more wonderful than all the world that can be explored in New York City. Things like that. But then the focus shifts this kind of weird line. In my Bible, it says, you are <laughs> terrible as an army with banners. That, I, I don't think I should use that line, like, in my wife. Like, I just don't think that would work. You're terrible. The ESV, if you have that translation, says you are awesome as an army with banners. Slightly better. We're, we're improving a little bit. And then the NIV says majestic as troops with banners. What's, what's going on here? What's with this obsession about troops with banners? Okay, another one of our rules of the road. We are talking about poetry. This is imagery. This is not meant, in this case, to be interpreted literally. Remember our study from two weeks ago? We talked about how Song of Solomon uses this ancient form of poetry called wasp. Remember we talked about this and how it uses imagery from nature to really describe beauty, how that would have been employed in weddings. It would have been a wedding poem. The kind of army that they're talking about is the kind of army that conquers. And so the gist of what this passage is saying is the love that this man is experiencing for this woman has conquered his heart. It has walked in like an army with banners raised, ready for a fight, and finds that the territory is to be taken. The man is saying, your attractiveness is like an army marching in to conquer my heart. That's a good line. I like that line. When the ladies of the chorus are singing in verse 10, they're basically quoting back what the man has just said. And you can almost hear some disbelief in what they're saying. Like, wait, what? Like, your love is so strong and so wonderful. It's like being conquered? Like, what is that? What does that even mean? The Hebrew word that is being used in terrible, awesome, majestic, all those different examples, it's the word ayom. And it means majestic with an implication that this majesty instills awe that borders on fear. So a sense of just being in awe and wonderment of something powerful, and there's almost a little bit of fear in your heart. If you're married, you know this feeling. When you first met your spouse, when you first started dating, you kind of had that feeling of like, this could be going somewhere. I think this is going somewhere. Oh my gosh, we're going somewhere. This is kind of crazy. And it's enlivening to the heart, but there's also a little bit of fear and terror, especially if you're a guy, I think. The message translates these two lines with the word ravishing. The ravishing visions of ecstasy in verse 4. Ravishing is the night sky with its galaxies of stars. When I was living in Costa Rica, the night sky really and truly was ravishing. If you've ever been in a different hemisphere, you know what I'm talking about. You look up at the sky and you don't see any of the familiar constellations. 
you don't see the stars that you're used to seeing where you live. And if in the case like I was in at camp, you're so far away from the lights of the city, there is literally nothing to distract you from the grandeur of the skies above you. And it's powerful and it draws you in. It's one of the ways that God expresses his glory through nature. As the stars can be ravishing and draw us in by their beauty, so is the woman's love for the man, drawing him in and conquering him. Okay, now here's where we have to answer the question, so what? What does this mean? It means that this is the kind of love that does something amazing. If this is the kind of love that conquers the heart, it's the kind of love that has to transform us. It is absolutely the kind of love that has to transform us. And there's a lot of different ways that we could talk about love being transformative, but I'm just going to focus in on something singularly for today. This kind of love transforms these two people because it instills confidence. How confident are you when you know you are loved? When you're at work and you know your supervisor has your back, hell or high water, they got you. You are covered. That is a kind of love that gives you confidence. How confident can you be when you know that your brothers or your sisters or the people who walk closely with you in your life really and truly are there for you and their love fills you up, kind of puts together parts of you that would normally be sort of falling apart, but because of their love, you can go and do something amazing. We can taste a bit of this in human relationships, like we've talked about in our series about covenant relationships, that safety and that flourishing that only happens when we're in covenant with one another but we can most powerfully experience this in a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. He puts us back together in such a way that when we enter into places where we desperately need him, his love instills us with confidence. Jesus talked about this kind of love in Matthew 5. I want to invite you to turn there with me. Matthew 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Magna Carta, his Declaration of Independence, his big statement. And he's talking about the kind of love that instills confidence through the analogy of light. Listen to this. This is Matthew 5, 14. Jesus was saying this to all the people listening to him. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying to his audience, in me, you will find your greatest purpose. He's saying to them, you will be so caught up in how much I love you that the fear of anything destroying you will over time go away. You cannot be destroyed by fear, by anxiety, when that love that shapes us from the core through Jesus Christ is present. This is the kind of love that instills confidence in us. So, What could your life and my life look like if we really believe this? If we believe this to the core as parents, if we believe this to the core as neighbors and as friends, how could this shape something like your neighborhood? To be so filled with this confidence that the light and love of God is being poured out into you and that that is going forth in ways that we cannot control. I think the answer has a lot to do with our sense of vision for our lives. And a vision is a picture of an ideal future, right? How do you picture your future? This past week, uh, we had uh, someone come and visit us at our Bethany Staff Chapel, uh, an entrepreneur from Redmond, a guy who's a local here. He leads a company that helps churches give, that helps facilitate online giving. And so he showed up, and I was so blown away by his message to us. He talked about his passion for the marketplace, for reaching people. He's a Christian entrepreneur. He sincerely believes that the gospel goes forth in the marketplace in powerful ways. 
and his utter willingness to give himself over to the vision that God had for his company, that God continues to have for his company. And he talked about grounding himself in prayer and making sure, asking God every day, God, is this the vision that you have for my company? Is this the vision that you have for our employees, for our ability to help churches do giving well? He told the story of how uh, early on in their company's history, they were at the breaking point. And those of you that have worked in startups know all about this. You're about at the end of the fiscal year, the money just isn't there, and you're wondering, are you going to have to shut this thing down? He got to that point. And so he was praying, and he was asking God for wisdom around this. And all of a sudden, they get an email from a venture capital firm saying, we want to invest $600,000 in your company. And he prayed about it with his coworkers, with the co-founder of their company, and they said no, because they believed God wanted something bigger for them, which would have been a risk that I probably wouldn't have been willing to take. I don't know about you. So they said no to the 600K, waited a couple of more days, and lo and behold, a single investor calls them and says, I want to give you guys a million dollars for your business. Now, I'm not going to encourage all of us to give up $600,000 gifts or investments. I think that worked out really well in this scenario. But I think the reason that worked out is because God had given a vision to this man and to this company, and they were being faithful to that vision. And that comes from that kind of love that instills confidence, this ayom, captivating kind of love. If that's all you can see, then what are you going to worry about the difference between 600K and a million dollars? If you can see the love of God being played out in your life and in your company's life, that's what you care about. And I really appreciate the example that this man set for us. I want to get better at having a vision like that. I don't know about you, but I really want to see more of that in my life. And I believe that as we are sent forth as a church every week, we are doing things like this, where the confident love of God allows us to change the world. It allows us to change the marketplaces that we're all a part of, or our homes, or our schools, or businesses, and it changes us. And I think that's one of the things that's happening in the text. So God's love empowers his people through confidence. Now let's talk about calling. Let's talk about the stuff that we're supposed to go and do each week of our lives. How does Sunday connect with Monday? Great question. Many of you were here for Song of Solomon week one. If you weren't here, I encourage you to grab the podcast. We kind of did this big overview where we met the characters. We learned about the different uh, types of relationships that are going on. And we learned that the woman, our heroine in the story, actually has a vocation. You might remember this from uh, Song of Solomon 1.6. We learned about how her skin has changed color because she's working out in the fields. The sun has gazed down on me as I worked. She works in agriculture. That's one of our theories. If we're going to construct a theory around who this woman is and what's her life like, she's an agricultural worker. She works outside. One of the pastors at our teaching team meeting this week made the connection between that aspect of her character and a different aspect of her character that is highlighted in verse 11, if you want to turn there with me. Song of Solomon 6.11. This is the woman speaking. It's shifted from the man to the chorus to the woman. She's speaking in 11 and 12. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. If you grew up around agriculture, you can totally resonate with this. How much time do you have to spend when you're a farmer, when you're working in an agrarian environment, going out and checking on your crops, making sure that those little buds are coming together, that this guy's getting enough water over here, that the soil's ready over there? It takes so much time and energy. And that's one of the things that this woman is doing as part of her vocation. We get a glimpse of her vocation in verse 11, which is just a good reminder that God cares about our work. He cares about what we make. He cares about what we do. He cares that we do it well to give him glory. 
And then we learn something else about the kind of work that the woman is doing. Look at verse 12 with me real quick. Song of Solomon 6.12. Before I was aware, my fancy set me in a chariot beside my prince. My Bible translation says my fancy, which is kind of an odd turn of a phrase. The ESV and the NIV say it this way. My desire set me among royalty, among people who don't normally associate with people who work in the fields. In other words, she's out doing her job, she's working, and she is swept up by this reminder of how beloved she is, of how incredibly loved she is. The word that is used there for desire or fancy is nephesh, which is a really interesting Hebrew word. It's used a ton in the Old Testament, and it means things like soul and breath and body and the entire person. It's used in Genesis 2-7 when God makes people. He makes people in his image. He breathes life into Adam, and Adam becomes a nephesh, a created being, something that has life that has been given to him. This is so fascinating when we think about the larger thing that God is trying to do with this passage. Within the context of this woman's calling, the job that she's supposed to be doing every single day, the love of her life draws her forward draws her into extraordinary connections and love her, loves her with an opulence that is befitting of royalty. Isn't that amazing? It's that ravishing, awe-inspiring love, like looking up at the stars, like we talked about a moment ago. Only this time, the love that's shared between the woman and the shepherd, this just happens to her on her way to something. It just happens to her, just this memory, just this reminder of how deeply loved she is. So this begged the question for me, Man, how do I get that? How can I remind myself of how deeply loved I am in my most daily and mundane tasks? How can I remember that? I so easily forget that. This text is really encouraging to me. When you, um, <laughs> when you think about your job, when you think about my job, it might be easy to think that because I'm a pastor, my first instinct is to pray and to sort of do things that like is befitting of someone of a holy stature when I face stress, when I face things that are problems in my life, I can disaffect you of that idea. I wish that my heart was aligned in such a way that I go to God when I face stressful things. I usually do what most of us do. When we face something that is challenging to us, that's vexing, I rely on my training, I turn to my own resources, my own wisdom, and I still try to get stuff done. But what I've been convicted about lately is that the incredible importance of prayer in my work has been lacking. And I don't know about you, but I am at my best when I'm able to catch these little things that come at me. doesn't matter if it's a text message, if it's an email, if it's a project I've been working on. A very practical way for me to engage those things is to start my day out by holding them out in prayer to God. Just a simple beginning to the day. God, I've got this meeting. I've got this person. These are the things that I know will probably happen in my day. There's a whole bunch that I don't even know is going to happen in my day. Would you use all of my day for your glory? Would you take every bit of it? and use it for your purposes. That helps me not rely as much on myself. And I'm a better pastor and a better husband and a better father when I get rid of that addiction and move toward the reliance that I know God desires. The feeling that I get when I do that is like air slowly being let out of a balloon. Maybe you can relate to this. When you pray about something, it's like the pressure and the power that that thing has to intimidate or scare you, it just draws down. It gets a little bit easier to manage. I believe that's one way for us to stay in touch with the awesome, awe-inspiring love of God in all of our vocations. 
to start with prayer. There's a a mission group that I respect a lot called International Justice Mission that some of the families here have a connection to. IJM, no matter where you're serving, they require that you spend the first 15 minutes of your day in prayer. So they pay their hundreds, if not thousands of employees to pray for the first 15 minutes of their day. That is part of your job description if you work at IJM. And they're Christian organizations, so they can do that, right? Like Microsoft isn't going to be barking at you about praying when you start your day. This is a way for us to engage that ayom, that love of God that transforms everything, that majestic love. We can trust in God's power when we remember that our callings belong to him too. And that every little bit of that calling, whether it's chasing down your kids, whether it's driving someone to soccer practice, whether it's trying to complete a project on time or respond to a really critical email, every bit of that belongs to God and is valued by God. So may you pursue that with his blessing this week, especially through the lens of prayer. So God's love in Christ empowers his people for his calling, for his transformation. Let's talk about transformation for just a minute. And this is kind of how we'll wrap up. Uh, I was telling you guys at the beginning about how working in Costa Rica sort of transformed my body. Why didn't my pants fit? Oh, I lost weight. Great. It wasn't like I was unrecognizable. Like, I got back and people still knew who I was, still had brown hair, still kind of medium height, my voice sounded the same, all that stayed the same. But another aspect of that transformation was my heart. And you guys have been through this, if you've traveled abroad, if you've been in situations where you have really had an opportunity to focus in on what God is doing, what God is teaching in your life. And so one of the things that he transformed in my heart in that time in Costa Rica was as I learned how to look at prayer and reading the scriptures and journaling in a way that wasn't perfunctory. Like I'd followed Jesus Christ probably for four or five years before that, and I'm kind of disciplined, so I was really in a good rhythm around like, I do my quiet time, then I eat my Pop-Tarts, then I go do this. Yes, I literally ate Pop-Tarts like almost every day. You can do that when you're 20. But it wasn't as much about the heart. All those routines didn't actually serve the transformation of the heart that God desired. And so I have this photo that I look at from time to time of a spot by the river at camp in Costa Rica. And it was this little rocky shore. But there was this perfect spot where I could go and lean my back up against this big old tree, and this beautiful crystal clear river ran right by me. And that was where God re-engineered parts of my heart around seeking him. Like reading the Bible and really trying to listen and put myself into the stories and absorb it for what it's worth. I really felt like that was a transformation of my heart that I did not plan. The transformation that God desires to do in each of us almost always is something that we do not plan. If you're in project management, transformation in the way of Jesus Christ is really going to bum you out because it doesn't work like that. It could be that you are facing a change in your life right now that's really good or really bad. Change is kind of like that. It's sort of one way or the other. You got a promotion. Congratulations, you are going to work for every penny of your salary. You're in a new relationship. Congratulations. Not, neither of you know where it's going. You have no idea. This is all part of how God's and only God's merciful ability to transform us and remake us plays by his rules. We need change in our lives because God, because God always loves us too much to leave us where he is. He does not change us because he thinks we are poor or anything like that. He changes because he loves us, because he wants to see us be more of who he intended us to be. Our transformation is not something we can engineer or project manage. We play a part. We roll up to it, and we agree to it in a way. But God always has more for us than we could have imagined. 
I want to share one of my favorite quotes with you from C.S. Lewis. This is from his book, Mere Christianity. And it's been remarkably helpful to me this week as I've thought about transformation. Lewis writes, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently... He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing that here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. If you are facing pain and suffering, God is building something in your life. He is building a mansion. If you are facing a season of great joy and abundance, same thing. He's building something. The challenge that we face when we follow Jesus Christ is do we trust him when it gets really painful, really hard? And the kind of love that we see reflected in this week's chapter of Song of Solomon is the foundation that allows us to hang tough in the middle of the hardest things. Jesus once said, I have no will of my own, just the will of my Father. That is someone who is united with God in such a way that his life even is changed. And so may we desire that for one another. I want to invite us now to come to Jesus' table, to communion. Because this is also a place of transformation. When we come to this table, we come in such a way that we are invited. And we are invited not because of our own merits, but because of who God is and what he has done. And so I want to invite the band to come forward. I want to invite the ushers to come forward and join me up here. And I'll pray for us as we enter into this time together. Jesus, we thank you that you are transforming us, and we believe that part of the transformation you have includes worship, includes a meal, includes fellowship together. And so we thank you for this meal. We thank you for simple bread and simple juice that we know you're going to use in powerful ways to continue that work of transformation and to remind us as we gather at table as a family that we are deeply loved and that your love instills confidence in us in ways that we could never imagine. So bless these elements and use them for your glory. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he offered it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this and remember me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he poured out the cup saying to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins for many. The Apostle Paul reminds us in one of his letters that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ until he comes again. This is nourishment for the people of God, to do the work of God and the ways of God. So I want to invite you as you're ready to come forward. We'll start at the back and head down these aisles here in the middle. And then once you've received the bread and received the cup, you can head back to your seats along the side. We have gluten-free elements available for those who have allergy concerns. They're in the smaller basket. And as you come forward, these folks will say to you, this is Christ's body broken for you. 
This is the cup of Jesus Christ. This is Christ's blood shed for you. When you return to your seats, I invite you to take the bread as you're ready. And then if you would hold on to the cup uh, for just a little while, uh, we will drink the cup together, as is our tradition here at Bethany. So starting at the back, uh, please come forward. Come forward to rejoice with the Savior at his table.